Support for To The Point comes from Bausch & Lomb. Beautiful and healthy looking eyes? It shouldn't be a compromise. Lumify Eye Illuminations, developed by the experts at Bausch & Lomb exclusively for the sensitive eye area. To cleanse, nourish, and brighten. Lumify Eye Illuminations, only in the eye care aisle. Ocular surface disease. It's complex, chronic, and progressive, but rife with opportunity for the enterprising optometrist. The mission of this podcast is to make this condition more understandable and accessible to those interested in specializing in it. So let's get to the point. Welcome to another episode of the To The Point podcast. My name is Jackie Garlick, and I have my lovely co-host with me, Dr. Leslie O'Dell. We are very excited to be chatting with our guest today because she is such a strong female in our industry. She is brilliant, and she has many degrees to back that up. Dr. Kelly Nichols received her OD degree from the University of California, Berkeley, completed a residency in ocular disease at Omni Eye Specialists of Colorado, and earned her MPH in biostatistics and PhD in vision science at The Ohio State University. In 2014, Dr. Nichols was named Dean of the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Prior to that, Dr. Nichols was a professor at the University of Houston College of Optometry, where she co-founded and served as executive director for the Ocular Surface Institute. She currently serves as a medical advisor to the Sjogren Syndrome Foundation, has served extensively on the executive board for the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society, and on each of the steering committees. Dues, Dues 2, Contact Lens Discomfort, and MGD Workshops, and is a founding member of the Ocular Surface Society of Optometry. She is a leading expert in dry eye disease. Dr. Nichols is or has been on the editorial boards of the journals Optometry and Vision Science, the Ocular Surface, and she is extensively published. Dr. Nichols, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have you. Such a pleasure to be here with both of you. I, I'm so impressed, like by these other degrees. So the you know you've got the MPH, but a PhD is like no joke. My husband got his PhD. He was miserable getting this PhD. Like this is like a serious commitment to get that. So I'm so impressed you do this with all you did this with all of the other things you were doing. Oh, it was. I really wanted to learn more about. Um, the science behind dry eye and really the science behind vision. And it was an opportunity to just go one step further. I knew I wanted to do research and kind of to be taken seriously in the research world, you have to have an extra degree of some kind um, if you have a PhD that's really helpful in gaining funding. So I was, and, and learning how to gain funding. So I was, I was trying to go down that path. You did it. <laughs> Job. <laughs> which is why you know which is you know that background alone is why I thought it would be perfect if you had some time to share with us because the pipeline of dry eye and even the landscape of dry eyes changed so much in um, Jackie and I's career that for the past 20 years you know we we sometimes still do see our colleagues maybe not give dry eye the face time that it deserves. I know there's still the argument of is it if it's truly even a disease state of the eye and hopefully we keep moving beyond that. Um, and as the therapeutic landscape continues to grow, I think you know it's really becoming hard to dispute that we are treating a disease state. Um, but I thought, you know, who better to kind of teach us and, and tell us about the pipeline than you. 
So that's really what we were hoping that you'd help us dive into the future of um, dry eye in the next year to maybe two to three. Yeah, it has been crazy in the dry eye landscape how many things have come you know, through some, some part of FDA clinical trials to try and get approval. And you know, up until you know, fairly recently, there had been many more failures than successes. And there's obviously a long gap between um, cyclosporin resaces being approved in 2003 and then 2016 when Zyber was approved. So that kind of left a barren landscape almost for those years where you really only had a choice, one choice. And then, you know, slowly we're gaining some more choices. And I think that the, the newer things that are coming into the landscape in, in FDA clinical trials are not just the same old, same old. They're trying, you know, people are looking at different mechanisms of action that we've not even heard before. And then there's even some ideas and theories about um, what is early dry eye and then what is dry eye related to systemic conditions. And so in some ways, I really do think it's getting more complicated. I hate to say that because I try and tell people, you know, keep it simple do something, you know, take a look, do something and then see if it works and then make a change if not. But I think that um, there's gonna be a place for education as we go forward because the different mechanisms may be additive to one another, which is what we're all hoping for. Kind of like glaucoma, you know, where you can add one onto something else because they do things differently. And hopefully then together, you know, they'll make a larger impact for that patient. I think you're right. It does, it does in some ways seem more complicated, but this idea of layering on different therapies with different mechanisms of action is, is um, exciting and, and great for patients. I mean, we've seen this with Tiravaya. A lot of patients are layering, or a lot of practitioners are layering that on with their cyclosporin or their Zydra that they're already using. So I, I do think um, the innovation that is coming and we've already seen even in the past five years is, is great for the profession is great for patients. Yeah, I still do think that the one thing we're really missing is, is sort of the pairing of a diagnostic test and a treatment. So, you know, we have a lot of diagnostic tests and they're even, you know, more and more seem to be being in development or used. And then, you know, you get a new treatment. And of course the tests that were done in the clinical trial are the ones you, you look at the data for to see, well, does this make sense to me clinically to try and use this on my patient? But it's not like you can, you can just do a diagnostic test and know if the result is this, that you should use drug Y. And then if you use drug Y, you should see an improvement in that diagnostic test. Um, that would be like the nirvana of dry eye, but we're, we're really not there yet. You know, this, the approval process for dry eye and the FDA is still complicated. You know, it seems simple, a sign and a symptom replicated and it isn't that simple though, because you have to pick the sign and then you have to pick your symptom. And then we all sort of revert back to the ones that have been used before. And so, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of a change in that and people are trying to be creative, but the FDA kind of locks some of it into a, a box as well. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how new products sort of make it through um, the pipeline. What is something that you are like seeing that is on the sort of near future horizon that you're excited about or think is like good science? Is there something that you've seen that you think is going to be make an impact? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, so I, I like 
probably the closest. Well, there's two that are pretty close, but one's the Novo 3 that's by BNL. And um, the way they design their trials is really like a, a dry eye trial, but with the population of MGD patients. So they looked at some of their, you know, they were looking at some of the more classic signs and symptoms, not really those at all related to MGD, like MGD grading or scoring or quality of the secretions as part of their approval packet. And so it's interesting because it's a dry eye trial for patients with MGD. But the data is super strong and it's an interesting compound. You know, it, it's not like anything that we've seen before. And so it'll be, it's, it's going to be hard to know. And there'll be a big, a lot of room for phase four studies to sort of parse out, well, what clinical tests should we be doing that are related to the meibomian glands when we put patients on this particular therapeutic? I mean, if signs, if signs of you know, either redness and or staining improve and symptoms improve and the patient feels better, that's one thing, but then we won't know either how that compares or layers onto some of the in existing in-office treatments for MGD. But I can't wait, I can't wait to try it. You know, I can't wait till it's approved and we can, if it gets approved and that we can, you know, finally use it. So that's one. And then I'm also um, interested in Repox, re I can't say it. It's Reproxilab, yeah. Yes, it is, by Aldera and um, that, they're taking a very interesting approach to their FDA approval packet process. They're using some um, different signs in different layers of their testing through from phase one all the way to phase threes. And it's sort of, you know, kind of the body of evidence. They're having, you know, approvals of they're finding signs, they're finding symptoms, and then they're kind of putting it all together. But I'm very excited to see that's a very different mechanism of action. And I'm excited to see what that looks like um, as they put that through the NDA process. Well, and that product in particular, I think is where some of that complexity that you were talking about comes to, you know, when you're talking about RASP inhibitors and things along those lines, it's things that, you know, maybe now we're teaching in schools and you probably could speak to that more, but I feel like when, when I was going through training, it was definitely not that granular or I just didn't remember. Could be that too. <laughs> yeah, I, I would venture to say I didn't really learn about it until I started reading about it you know, here today, now in this day and age. Probably we did hear it, but more so than um, an aldehyde, a reactive aldehyde species. We heard, maybe learned about reactive alcohols and so, and they're connected and, and all of that. But I literally every time have to go back with this now and review, okay, draw it out for me. You know, like I was recently talking to the, the founder of the company and I said, can you, can you draw it for me? Because I can't quite get it. You know, where's the chemical reaction happening? And and then through all that, um, the result was, yes, our colleagues are going to need some education on what it is, how it works, and why it works, and what they should be looking for clinically um, with patients if it does get approved. Because we try to do the education with all the new products that come out. And we, you know, LFA agonists and such, we, we didn't know what those were before we started hearing those words, especially when you get molecules that are created for the treatment of, you know, because they fit into some pathway. That's where, you know, new education and continuing education is very important for our colleagues. And I would say it has to get into the optometry schools as well. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I, I had never heard of a RASP inhibitor until I was reading about this too. So I, I was in the same, I'm like, maybe I missed this in school, but I don't actually think we learned it. But the, I, I do think it is just really new mechanisms of action. And this is said across eye care. So for example, in um, dry AMD, there's a lot of talk about the complement pathway and C3 inhibitors and C5 inhibitors. And I'm like, I don't remember. I don't remember what this is. Maybe we were taught, but we, if it's not actively used, you know, in our clinical care or, or even talking about it with a patient, I, I, I forget too. So you're right. There is, there is certainly a need when these medications come out, you know, if they get approved to have that education, um, for our colleagues also, um, as well as in the school. Is that, is that something that's happening you're seeing in schools? Like are, is there conversations surrounding some of these newer things? I would say in the schools, it kind of comes down to education when, you know, when the product is available or approved, then it becomes more salient to talk about it. But there really is probably a bit of a better education than I had for sure. And I, I can't speak for either of you about some of the elements in the inflammatory pathway, you know, it's like you mentioned complement a few minutes ago. I'm sure that I learned about complement. I mean, you certainly learn about cytokines and stuff like that, but complement was a little bit different. And, you know, now it is becoming, you know, something related to, you said retina, but then also um, I have a colleague at, at UAB who's doing work in Sjogren's dry eye with complement. Um, Dr. Jillian Zamansky. And so, you know, we might find out that it's just as related to the front of the eye as it is the back of the eye. And that's kind of the neat part. I mean, there's only a few ways that the body can respond to insult or injury and inflammation is one of them. So um, I think that some of the headway that some of our, of the dry eye medications made in just educating about the inflammatory pathway will be helpful as we learn new elements as new products come out. And the Novo 3 is going to be our first MGD, you know, therapeutic, which is really exciting. Um, I've been watching that for sure with Bosch. And um, I, I had high hopes that maybe it was going to help change the gland secretions. But I think that what I've been seeing just with stability of tear film um, with some of their preliminary data has been pretty exciting for sure. So I think just like you were saying about pairing it and where is it going to fit with our in office treatments that we're doing with patients, I think is gonna be really exciting. Yes, there's one thing about, you know, the FDA process that I think is important to remind people. You know, once you start on a pathway of, of getting approval, if you've had some success with one particular test, for example, you hang on to that and you move that test into the next phase, you know, whether it be a sign or a symptom. And so then you get to the end and maybe what you're suggesting, you know, that particular assessment of clarity of the meibomian glands or, you know, you could sum my bone, you know, maybe it's not, it hasn't been done. And so you can't comment on it because it hasn't been done, but that doesn't mean that it might not have an impact on it when you can finally start looking, you know, especially clinically when you're doing it, you know, one-to-one -one in clinic. So, you know, that's why a lot of the products say not for use in contact lenses, because, well, guess what? Not a single contact lens wearer was in the trial. And so while it may be safe, no one's ever tested it. And so because of that, you have to say that it can't be used with. And, and it's, a, it's a similar thing when you get down to the end of the pathway of FDA approval and you've selected your sign. It could be others that work. It's just they pick the one. They've optimize the study for success so that they can get approval. And then what happens when it gets out to what I like to call the great unwashed is really the most important part because it's clinicians experience with real live patients. 
Well, maybe talk a little bit about that phase four, you know, how important it is. And, you know, a lot of times I think that the clinicians that are using it would have great ideas or insights, and maybe they just don't even know how to get involved in phase four research if they have that interest. Oh, absolutely. I would venture to say that all good phase four ideas come from clinical experience and what people have noticed when they've started to use products um, in the real world. So any, so if you, I'll give you the best example of all, Donald Korb. Dr. Donald Korb is you know, so well known in the field of dried MGD, and he is probably the I'll say, grandfather of the great idea clinically. I mean, his clinical curiosity led him to do so many studies in his office for his own knowledge. In fact, early years, he would be criticized because he would find out the answer from the little study or whatever it was that he did. And then that was it. He wouldn't publish it or, you know, move on because he, he answered his own question. And so then, you know, when, when Caroline Blackie started working with him, you know, he got a lot more publications out because they, you know, they, they together were a great team that way. Um, his mind was always questioning, you know, as he would use therapeutics on patients and probably, and it still is, you know, questioning. And that's the best, I can say, best, best characteristic of a curious uh, mind in optometry. If you have an idea, talk to your rep, you know, your rep's probably coming in to see you if you're, if you're writing for whatever the, the therapeutic is and tell them you're interested and they'll hook you up with the medical team who can then, take your idea and even help you execute it, which is, you know, as much sometimes as you want, like that can go from you collect the data, we'll do all the rest. But if you have some ability to do some other parts of it, you can too. And they can walk you through how you would write your initial proposal and submit it through the portal and then see if you get it approved. So I would say definitely if you kind of come up with an idea, no idea is a bad idea. There's just some ideas that are better. <laughs> so you know you don't know until you ask so I'd say go for it spoken like a true mother I appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> well you mentioned earlier about being uh you know a woman in this field and I would say the same goes for every negotiation any woman ever does any you know if you're going in to ask your boss for a raise you know do it because if you don't ask you won't get and it's that you know it's it's that simple really um, you can always be told no, and you can't be afraid to be told no, but you got to ask. And so if you have an idea and want to try it, go for it. That is mom advice too. I mean, I'd say the same thing to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> so recently, you know, I've been doing some lectures with, you know, outstanding educators and clinicians um, in, the, in the topic of Oxirate or Surgimin. And, um, you know, that's for NK serious stage, you know, the studies have all been for Mackey phase two and three. So these are your patients, your really, your really severe patients. And I know, for, given what I now know, I think uh, I really probably did some dry eye patients of mine in the past, a disservice. Now there weren't options maybe back then. My very first dry eye clinical trial was with Inspire Pharmaceuticals. I remember I had this one, I can see her face even still today. Her corneas were really just a mess. And you know what I'm talking about when I say that they just look chewed up or run over or, and she was, oh no, my eyes feel okay. 
And I'm thinking, how could they possibly feel okay if they look like that? You know, I mean, and of course the thought of doing, it was a clinical trial. So, you know, there were, we weren't doing corneal sensitivity and I would venture to say practically nobody does. And that would be nice if we would start that a bit more, but I'll bet she really would have benefited from, you know, this, this therapy now today, which has been a long time coming, of course. So that's one thing, but then, you know, there's the walk back from the Mackey phase two to the Mackey phase one. And what that looks like is kind of like dry eye. And so how do you differentiate the two? And should we be recommending to our colleagues that they do you know, um, cotton whisk tests to determine, you know, corneal sensitivity, or at least become familiar with what normal looks like. This is, I kind of feel it's a bit like what we used to try and say to encourage somebody to start expressing the meibomian glands when nobody was doing it. Um, so I don't know, I just would love to hear what you guys think. Um, one tip I had heard from Francis Ma was that if you stain, you know, and look at the conjunctiva, and there's conjunctival staining and not corneal staining, then it probably is dry eye or very minimal corneal staining. But if you have more corneal staining and kind of more pristine-like um, conjunctiva, and then you do have some sort of sense of reduced corneal sensitivity, that might be more to be an early stage NK. What do you think? Well, I think that, you know, I would say it, the population at whole is is not really as sensitive to even treating sometimes that that kind of keratitis that you're describing. I've seen that get still treated with artificial tears. I tell doctors when I'm speaking, if you're seeing that to me, that's more in, you know, we're starting to get into advanced dry eye if you're seeing corneal findings. Um, I have been doing a lot more cotton wisp testing and it's surprising. I will sometimes think, for sure, they're not going to, you know, I will do it and the patient doesn't blink or move at all. And I'll say, do you feel anything? And they feel nothing at all. You know, so sometimes it's, you can't really go with what you're seeing. And it probably does have to become more of a standard of care, especially now that we have a, a treatment, you know, option for NK. And like anything else, in my mind, if I can treat it early, it's probably going to be a better service to that patient's lifetime of living with dry eye disease or, you know, NK. And I think I've had a few people have to cycle through a couple courses of Oxervate. I probably have, you know, a handful of patients on round two. Maybe I wouldn't have needed to do that had I met them a little bit earlier in the, you know, in the process. Yeah. I mean, some are going to fail no matter what. I mean, in the study of 65 to 70% actually, you know, managed to stay clear or cleared. And, um, and then of those, you know, the clear, only about 80% of them stay cleared for a year. So there's going to be some work, either it's something else or one round isn't enough and you need another. Um, but, you know, in trying to, it, it is a pretty significant therapeutic approach though, for somebody who you think might have just dry eye though. And, you know, in those instances, you might be still trying, you might try Talga serum or you might try, if you really think it's, you know, headed towards that and you don't want to go quite that route you know maybe you're doing an amniotic membrane but I think that even with that you know now living in like the reimbursement world and making sure that services are covered for patients um, having that sensitivity test still helps me if I'm going to be doing you know something in office like a membrane uh, obviously with autologous serum that's out of pocket for patients anyway you know but 
if I'm doing a service in office that I can get covered, I have to, that's, you know, also helpful for me to know. Yeah, this is, it's funny you bring this up because I have a patient right now that I just um, started on Oxervate for like, um, you know, relative, not, not mild. I mean, she has a noticeable keratitis. She does look terrible and uh, she doesn't have like a PED per se, but uh, she, you know, came in and was like, I'm feeling pretty good. We, we were treating her for dry eye. And this is like going to highlight my weakness here, but I didn't test a corneal sensitivity on her initially when I saw her for dry eye, but uh, I, I had started treating her and she came back and she's like, I feel really good. I like started her stare. I forget what I did, but anyway, and I, she was like, what, what I find useful also with patients is I ask them, I mean, I do a speed score for all of my patients, but sometimes I just feel like it's almost good to just say on a scale of one to 10, where do you feel like you fall on a dryness symptom scale? Is 10's the worst, one's minimal. I feel like that actually gives me a lot of information on how someone's feeling. And this woman says one, and I go, oh, okay, that's great. Like I asked her before I look at her. So I look at her and she looks horrible. And I was like, oh God, I don't think I checked a corneal sensitivity on her. Let me just do that really quick. And I was like, oh, she has, she's like, oh my God. Yeah, no, I can't feel that. And I was like, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's sort of, um, I don't know if we're going to get to the place where everyone's doing this on every patient, you know, because I, I don't know, for me, I feel like I'm guided a lot by what they say to me. Um, but you're, you make a good point. Like we really should probably do we be doing these more now that we actually have a therapeutic option for these patients. But the approach that you just talked about is perfect because you saw and heard something different and made a decision based on that. To, oh, wait, I need to do this test. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's exactly, you know, what we, if you don't do it the first time, well, that's okay. But if you kind of then just <laughs> catch it, often what happens is those patients, you know, aren't looked at again. And you know where they end up? They end up in my office because they're trying another drug in a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be interesting to know whether or not all these studies that failed enrolled patients, in, especially those that were enrolling patients that were really severely stained, well, we don't know if they had any corneal sensitivity or not. Mm -hmm. We don't know. I mean, could some, I sometimes think that the early, the early studies might have failed just because there were things we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, hindsight's 2020 and some of the study design things, but um, yeah, I mean, corneal sensitivity may become, you know, more useful. And, you know, Dompe is approaching and doing studies looking at Sjogren's related dry eye and some other avenues too, probably with different concentrations and different dosing to see if those things are useful for maybe the more mild patient. Well, and Jackie, you, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You, you, you can't do every test every time. And I think that what um, Dr. Nichols said at the very beginning is you start something, start something, even though dry eye is becoming com complex. And then when you see the patient back, if it's not going the way you anticipate, then that's when you start thinking, okay, what else might be going on? And I think that your scale, you know, is great, um, a great tip. The other thing that I do to try to make life easy for me <clears throat> when I'm seeing these patients back is I'll say, even though they filled out a questionnaire as well, I'll say, what's your number one symptom of all the things that bother you? And then what time of day is it happening? And I feel like that helps me kind of hone in on whatever's left that maybe I didn't see before or could, could have been not there before. 
that I do the exact same thing. What, what is your main symptom and what is it about you? I do the same thing, Leslie. Maybe we talked about this before. And then I do my scale one to 10. I still have a speed, but like, I just feel like, I don't know, for some reason that seems more useful to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, your scale one to 10 is really the same scale that's used in a lot of the dry trials. I mean, they call it zero to 100. Yeah. You know, yeah. Where, you know, but you, so you're sort of making it just a bit more simple for a patient, but it's the same thing. It's really just saying, how bad are you today? You know what that's going to um, be called soon, Kelly? That's going to be called the garlic um, <laughs> <eye dryness> score <laughs> test. <laughs> oh man. No, people are going to get, get confused. Is it the garlic or is it the garlic? <laughs> and I'll be like, oh God, <laughs> but I would love it. If something Maybe you could just use your initials. Yeah. yeah the JG, like the JG, but it could be this, the quick screen could be those three questions together. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Because, you know, there in early survey development that I had kind of worked on, we did ask what time of the day symptoms were, you know, occurred most, um, you know, was it morning or evening? And sometimes it's hard to, in a, in a study like that, decide which of those might be the better question. But if your patient's having problems in the morning versus problems in the evening or after they've been on the computer, well, that's just really useful. Mm -hmm. It's just useful information to help help pick a treatment, tell them when to use it, all of that. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I think cool. that of course we had lots to learn and no one better to learn from. So we really appreciate your time um, once again. Yeah. Well, this was super fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. And now for the to the point wrap up. The pipeline for ocular surface disease and dry eye disease is expanding rapidly. We also have noticed some challenges getting new medications through FDA approval, one of which Dr. Nichols highlighted was inconsistency of certain tests being able to give us predictable outcomes. What's exciting to see is as our pipeline grows, we'll start to think about dry eye disease management much like we do our glaucoma management, combining different mechanisms of action together to yield the best results for our patients. Be sure to stay tuned to the future of dry eye because it's going to be very exciting. <laughs>